0: So we're trying to almost educate our clients and, and other people within within the broader sector that social procurement isn't something we should be scared of. Um, and I think once you unpack it and you start thinking about the social outcomes, you start creating this bigger story of the reasons why, why does a social procurement framework exist, then you start to see some amazing, amazing outcomes
1: You'd be hard-pressed to find a person who knows what hiring, buying and working with purpose can achieve more than Hayden Hetter. He left his career as a public servant working with different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across Victoria, where he saw firsthand the power and the pitfalls of social procurement. But it was a moment he witnessed out of the office that really convinced Hayden to strike out on his own. I'm Craig Foster, and this is Getting It Right, the podcast where you meet the people and businesses who are hiring, buying, and working with purpose, and maybe learn a thing or two along the way.
0: My name's Hayden Hedder. I'm a proud Wiradjuri man, and I'm the managing director for Wamara. I've grown up in a pretty tight-knit community um, on the Murray River, or wodonga um, and very much a part of the Aboriginal community there. My mother is Aboriginal, um, as I mentioned, Miradjuri woman, and my dad is Maori, and I've grown up embracing both um, cultures. The family connection, the cultural connection, definitely a big part of who I am, um, and that's my identity, and, uh, and it's definitely, I guess,
1: the start of a pathway to how I've ended up where I am now. Hayden, you didn't start your career in construction. You were actually a park ranger. What drew you to that job?
0: I grew up in a small community or a small town um, surrounded by all these wonderful natural elements in the Murray River, um, close to the snow fields, many water bodies, including the, the Hume Weir. Um, so I've grown up, you know, spending all my spare time out in the outdoors. So I love camping, I love fishing and... Um, I guess finishing high school, I I was a bit lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I went and worked in an abattoirs, as I think most young people in, in those small country towns do. And it was through that year working in the abattoirs that I realised that I wanted to do something completely different to what I was doing right then and, then and there, and that was um, being outdoors um, and not restricted. So I went and studied an environmental science degree and that was really the the start of my journey into the public sector and um, as you as you mentioned into the role of a park ranger
1: and so as this in this park ranger field, that of course took you into uh, your Aboriginal cultural heritage management. I guess it also must have opened up a range of contacts and networks in the Aboriginal community and traditional owner groups uh, absolutely
0: so. Moving from um, environmental management, I was—I uh, was—I I guess I was providing an opportunity um, in Aboriginal cultural heritage management with Parks Victoria, the company I was working for at the time. Um, and what that role really uh, opened my eyes to, and, and allowed me an, a whole nother layer of experience and expertise, was that connection to Aboriginal cultural heritage and, and having a deeper understanding of my identity. It was um, through those early, early uh, engagements, I guess, with our local traditional owners or traditional owners in which, in the area in which I was working, um, which provided a new passion of mine. I, like, I, like I mentioned early day, uh, earlier, um, growing up, I was always connected to my culture and I was always connected to local community. Um, but it, I, I guess I grew up in a very much a, a, a white society, if, you, if I can say that. Um, played local sport, um, had a lot of non-Indigenous friends as well. And um, doing the role of Aboriginal culture heritage just opened up my eyes and gave me a new appreciation for my culture. Um, And it definitely allowed me an experience um, and a deeper understanding of how to engage respectfully uh, and, and why respectful engagement, respectful Aboriginal participation is so important.
1: And so when did this concept of social procurement come across your desk?
0: Well, it was... After a number of roles in government, um, I, I heard this term social procurement, and and naively I was I was having to look at the definition of what procurement was in general, um, let alone social procurement. What is social procurement? Um, and it probably took me two years to get my head around the the notion that social procurement is really designed at giving minority groups equal opportunity. It's as simple as that. And um, whilst I wasn't directly working in the social procurement space uh, as an Aboriginal person supporting Aboriginal community groups, uh, it was a it was a topic of conversation more regularly. So I definitely got my head around social procurement, um, and that's probably where the um, the idea for Wamara um, and for me to create a business came from. Is just having that deeper understanding of social procurement, understanding what works well and what doesn't, and I guess what's real and what's not in regards to genuine Aboriginal participation.
1: And so you were seeing barriers here, a disconnect between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people with skills who wanted work and the employers who had work for them.
0: The perception was that the social procurement framework has has created opportunities for all Aboriginal people that are willing and able Um, And whilst there's a a notion of uh, truth to that, um, that the social procurement framework does provide opportunity, the opportunities just aren't as accessible as what the perception was in government. And where that really came to light for me was coaching an Aboriginal football side in Melbourne called the Fitzroy Stars Football Club, where an incredibly proud Aboriginal football side with 30-plus years experience, uh, sorry, More than that, forty plus years um, of history, and supporting about an eighty percent Aboriginal um, uh, participation or Aboriginal team. And if you think of construction, you probably think of the demographic being young men. Um, So you know that sort of twenty-four to thirty-year-old bracket, um, and that's the, the exact bracket of age that the this football team had. And where the frustration came was that as a coach and as a leader of a football club, I'm seeing all these young men trying to enter the construction industry and they just could not maintain um, steady employment. Uh, a lot of them were getting opportunity, but just the way the the construction industry is is structured, I guess, um, and heavily utilising uh, labour hire type of um, businesses, and they absolutely serve a purpose in our industry. Um, but what it, what it lacked in some cases was continuity. So if we think the perception in government that there's all these wonderful opportunities for Aboriginal people and other people. Um, those opportunities just aren't as accessible as what the, what we thought they were in government, and I was seeing that play out firsthand, and that was a real frustration of mine. Um, and where the frustration became even more prominent for me was that I was gathering all these resumes uh, from these young men, uh, and uh, the reason that they were passing their resumes on to me is that I was working for for a, um, a, a an authority within government um, that could directly uh, provide these opportunities to Aboriginal people. So it was a a rail industry and... I was put, with with these resumes. I was trying to push them out into the industry, into different alliances, hoping that they would pick them up and say, "Yeah, well, we've got there's a decent candidate here." And unfortunately, not one person was was um, able to gain successful employment. So that was another kick in the kick in the guts, if you like, um, for not only me but for the individuals. So that was a real light bulb moment for me to say, so "I, you know, I, I've got the ability here." Um, to to do something. And in some ways, I felt responsible. It was my responsibility to do something. Um, And that was really what led me to to start this business. What's the significance of the name Wamara? So Wamara is a Wiradjuri word. It means build. In the early stages of forming this business, uh, there were some Uh, non-negotiables. Non-negotiables being that the cultural identity of our business um, was unwavering. So uh, that meant that as an Aboriginal man, um, we had to understand cultural protocols, understand cultural appropriateness. Um, And the reason we use a Wiradjuri word is that as a majority owner of this company, being a Wiradjuri man, it would make sense and it's culturally appropriate for me to use this word. Um, Wamara, meaning build, we use that because we're building infrastructure um, so this sort of a play on words here we're building infrastructure but more importantly for us we're building the capabilities of our community so it's it's a really it's a really respectful terminology and um, and I think uh, it's yeah it's it's resonated with a with a lot of our not only our staff but our supporters and our our advocates that we have on the peripheral. What
1: was your vision for Wamara
0: um so there's three key pillars that I work to. And they're uncompromising. We stick to them because that's what we, we're true to the, true to the core um, of what we want to achieve. The first pillar is providing continuity of employment to all of our employees who are engaged full-time and, and ongoing. The second pillar is to provide upskilling for our community. And how we do that is all of our employees, from myself through to our newest entrant, um, have a, an individualised career plan. So the career plan is really around capturing the individual's aspirations, um, whether they're directly um, relating to our business and the work that we have in hand, or whether it's something that they, you know, a, a behavioral thing that they might want to challenge themselves on or, or um, some type of soft skill. And the last pillar, which I think is the most important pillar to the success of our business to this point in time, is creating a culturally safe environment. And what that means for for us in our business is genu- is simply Aboriginal people supporting Aboriginal people. We have a strong mentoring program, a strong peer support program, uh, but we also have um, a number of non-Indigenous staff within our business also, where we offer cultural awareness training to our non-Indigenous staff and people on the peripheral, um, just to create that level of understanding of where some of the struggles that Aboriginal people have faced in the past, um, you know, so from a, from a historical point of view, but also what we can do in regards to unity and collaboration
1: moving forward. You'd never run a business before this or even worked in construction. How did you get Wamara off the ground? I had the motivation um, to provide
0: those career opportunities for our community. I had access to a potential workforce. Uh, what I didn't have was the industry knowledge, keeping in mind I've come from different, a different environment um, and different sectors, and I didn't have business knowledge. So I went and did further study. I went and undertook a um, graduate certificate in uh, business management. Um, I went and engaged multiple people, even some of my, my friends who are business owners, just to, I guess, listen to any, any advice that was given to me around the barriers to, to create a business um, and, and also what, what advice people have to, to get this thing off the ground. So it was months of months and months of of this journey of of uh, meeting new people and it was through a mutual friend of mine and I always like to give this person a shout out because it's without him um we wouldn't be able to I wouldn't have had this introduction it's Gary Monta from Monero Constructions um a great friend of mine who introduced me to uh a, a, what who is now a good friend of mine as well Ben Virtue who is the uh new business and strategy manager for Um, the parent company, I guess, of Wamara. Um, So the parent company being Simul, S-Y-M-A-L. Ben has a a deep passion for Aboriginal people, Aboriginal culture, and and he he really wanted to see um, a successful outcome that was probably missing from the market. And so it was, a, it was a, a classic example of right place, right time, that I had the motivation, I had the cultural IP, I had the network, um, and I was able to meet who are now my business partners who have the industry IP. And what we realised very quickly after um, you know a couple of small conversations, um, which led on to a much longer conversation, that we shared the same values. We shared the same values uh, for people. We shared the same values for family. And really th- in those early introductions, there was, I wasn't there to pitch an idea um, and they weren't there to pitch an idea to me. So if we talk about a partnership, it was a true sense of partnership that there's no, there was no hidden agenda. We came together, we realized that we could do something that was genuine, it was authentic, and it was going to have the right outcome for our community, which you know, if you re- if you fast forward three years down the track, we've had amazing um, successes. And it's because there's no hidden agendas.
1: You've been running Wamara for a few years now. What are some of the main mistakes other businesses make when they're trying to connect with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people?
0: So I spent probably 10 years uh, working in Aboriginal affairs in some way, shape or form. So, um, so a lot of the role that I had was around engaging Aboriginal people, um, encouraging Aboriginal participation for particular government initiatives. Um, So really that gave me a clear, clear understanding of where the barriers lie for genuine Aboriginal participation, but also where the success indicators are. So where I see companies failing is that they're focused on ticking the box um, and meeting these mandated targets uh, without really understanding what the social outcome is from meeting those targets, and what I mean by that is, I, I often I encourage and challenge our clients to to almost remove the targets. I know that sounds a little bit crazy because definitely the the, the targets within the social procurement framework help businesses like ours because it gives us that sort of space to play in. Um, but what I mean by removing the the targets, um, targets can often create a false ceiling. So once you hit the target, there's, there's almost no need to use you anymore. And we've actually been in conversations, naively, um, from the other side of the fence, where, um, hey, can you can you help us build this early part of the project? Um, we can, we just want to meet our social procurement target, and then not have to worry about it. So we're trying to almost educate our clients and, and other people within within the broader sector that. Social procurement isn't something we should be scared of. Um, And I think once you unpack it and you start thinking about the social outcomes, you start creating this bigger story of the reasons why, why does a social procurement framework exist? Then you start to see some amazing, amazing outcomes. Um, Don't get me wrong, there's a, you know, most of our clients, actually, I should say all of our clients are on this journey with us. um, And we're seeing that narratives start to change a little bit from, hey, we need to tick the box here to help us tick the box, meet the targets, but exceed the targets
1: and then celebrate the stories. Well, let's talk about one of those successful projects, one of those stories that it is good to talk about on a big government contract with the Western Program Alliance. Tell us about Wamara's work there. So uh, we were
0: engaged with the Western Program Alliance almost at the inception of our business. They engaged early days with us to build a couple of um, site establishment projects. Um, so building their temporary compounds for some of their level crossing removal projects. And that was a, a wonderful foot in the door for our business because we we're able to attract some carpenters, you know, some specific trade, um, some laborers, concreters. And we were able to, I guess, slowly integrate our business into the industry through these projects. And we started off delivering site establishment projects. There were three of them that the Western Program Alliance engaged with us. And um, we would we have definitely put our hand up to say we made some mistakes early days, um, you know, as, as any young contractor um, does. And I guess this goes to show the level of support that Western Program Alliance gave us. Rather than putting a line through Wamara, they – Walked us through and held our hand through those challenges that we had. Um, rather than create this commercial, um, you know, argument between two two um, contractors, we were able to have that support work, walk through our mistakes, and then thankfully through that support, we came out the other end a lot stronger. Which led us onto other alliances and other projects, and I'm very proud to say that within with the Western Program Alliance, particularly those early projects and their ability to support us led led to further work with the Western Program Alliance. And we ended up um, delivering a number of landscaping packages, like I'm talking, you know, in excess of seven to $8 million worth of work um, in a completely different environment, completely different scope of work in regards to site establishment to then landscaping. So we sort of bookended the project. And if it wasn't for that, genuine support and engagement from their senior management team, which trickled down to their delivery team, um, we probably wouldn't have got another go with them. So um, that that really shows the the support that is out there within the tier one um, contractors and builders.
1: It's so important to be able to learn from mistakes and grow as a business. Have there been other projects where you've been able to grow with the client? One project or one
0: area I'd like to share with you is the commercial building space where we're working with Lendlease on a couple of projects. They've actually engaged us on multiple projects now um, and a couple of those projects don't have social procurement targets associated with them. So we're, we've been engaged because of the trust they have in our business, the quality that we provide, the project management that we provide. And I guess the the whilst they... they those particular projects don't have a social procurement target. They've got their own um, internal aspirations. So they're really, really key points that I like to share. That whilst we are an Aboriginal business, we're supported by the social procurement framework. The the ability for us to grow the business now to be con, to be competing in a mainstream um, environment is probably the most the, the proudest part that I have. That we we've been engaged because we're good
1: at what we do. As you said earlier. Hayden, social procurement is about providing opportunities for minority groups, opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have or be able to access. And in the end, it's about the people. It's about people having opportunities, full-time employment, training. Tell us about how Wamara and all of these projects has changed the lives of your employees. We've got many stories
0: of success with not only our Aboriginal cohort of workers, we've got some international um, people that work in our business who have got permanent residency and other other great things for for um, for our broader um, business um, and their families, but specifically for our Aboriginal cohort, um, we've had people purchasing their first cars um, or you know whether that's outright or through um, through a loan, um, but. The one that we like to celebrate is people purchasing their first homes. You know, home owning your first home or owning a home is a real sense of ownership. Like that, you're stamping your your um, you know, your your, your ownership on a on a parcel of land that is yours. And why this is particularly important for us and why we celebrate this is that they're not just uh, buying their first homes. For their immediate family, they're actually the first homeowners within the lineage of Aboriginal family, um, and like what what a wonderful thing to celebrate. And and if we talk about. Breaking the back of poverty, or closing the gap, or creating um, self determination—that's a real great example of doing that. And I I never—I always say that this is—that's not a direct result of O'Mara. That's a direct result of continuity of employment, job security, financial independence. They're things that we all need, regardless of whether you're indigenous or not. Having financial independence allows you. And we all know that money doesn't make you happy, but it definitely provides um, stability, and and it takes, I guess, a, a, it takes alleviates some anxieties that you know we, that people do have without having money or job
1: security. So whether it's CIML or the Western Program Alliance or now Lend Lease, talk to other industry leaders, senior management, CEOs, directors, chairs, and just explain to them why social procurement is so important.
0: The social procurement framework also allows us as individuals and as a collective an opportunity to showcase what we can do. Um, and I'm watching now um, what's playing out in our business that we've got emerging leaders that without the these opportunities, they would still be happy to follow. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm just seeing this new level of confidence, and I can only imagine what their kids are seeing at home um, and and seen as role models to them. Um, you know, that that that's the real life changing um, stuff that that I like to celebrate. That you know, I've got kids at home, and I'm sure they're looking at me. Sometimes, not when they're not being embarrassed by dad, um, they're looking at me saying, you know, "You know, I'm really proud of what my dad's doing, and that's something that I wanted to aspire to."
1: Well, they surely must be, and so should you be very proud of what you achieved. Let's just finally reflect back on that footy field and those under your tutelage that you came to understand the problems they were facing, the barriers that were in front of them, and you're sitting here today with Wamara as a hugely successful business in many respects, uh, particularly socially. How has it changed your life? And tell us about that journey. Uh, it's it's changed my life um, for, in a number of ways.
0: I mean, in, in, in so many ways, I'm still the same. Uh, you know, like a, a, a putting the um, the fact that, you know, being able to start a successful business from essentially nothing. Um, you know, I've, I've grown up in housing commission, um, coming from incredibly humble background, um, to now, you know, experience financial independence myself and to provide you know, maybe a better life for my family. Although I've always been happy and healthy and always been able to provide for my family, I think it's the ability to provide um, other things that I might not have had when I was a younger person. Um, so there's definitely those elements that I'm incredibly proud of that have changed in, in my life. Um my outlook is still the same, my values are still the same, Um, my commitment to my family and community is still the same. So yeah, like I said, whilst it's provided other things for me, I I think relatively I'm still the same.
1: I'm Craig Foster and this is Getting It Right. Make sure you're following us in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. There's plenty of inspiring stories full of practical lessons, no matter if you're a big company, small business, government department, or not-for-profit. Getting It Right is a Jobs Bank podcast produced by Deadset Studios.